Colossians 2. I'll begin reading uh, from verse 20, and we'll read on through uh, chapter 3, verse 4. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are, were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body where they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Colossians chapter two, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Again, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So what Paul is going to be dealing with here, and he does this in some other letters as well, and that is this idea that there's um, various things that we are to make sure that we do that would, would I'll give you a, a several, uh, several ideas of what's behind this, because Different people have different ideas as to why they want to say there are certain rituals we have to follow or certain rules we have to follow. When I say rules, I'm always speaking of rules that are outside of Scripture. We follow the commands of Christ. We follow the precepts of Christ. And then we are to uh, use the Word of God to make wise decisions. But we need to make sure that we don't become confused or confuse others by exercising wisdom but making what the wisdom is a command of God. That's where you can get in trouble. A simple example, so you understand what I'm talking about, would be this. So it was very common in churches, especially in the 50s and the 60s, for uh, real conservative churches to tell people, and they did it in varying degrees, to tell people that it was sinful to go to the movies. Right? It might be wise for a Christian not to do that, but that's not a, that's not a command in the Bible. But, they were, but people were teaching that that was sinful, that you were disobeying God, uh, and that you weren't acting as a Christian. So when you begin to make up those kinds of things, and there's, there can be a long list uh, of those types of rules. Uh, my friend Arthur Frutenbaum says, depending on where you go, he says uh, it used to be that churches would have either the filthy five or the nasty nine uh, or the dirty dozen. And those are all these extra rules that you would have that weren't necessarily in the Bible. So we have to be careful of that, because that leads to legalism. Uh, legalism uh, can be looked at in several ways. When we talk about legalism, uh, it's always a negative thing. And those who are legalists tend to do one of a couple things. Number one, that is, there's the idea that there are certain things we must do to earn our salvation. Now, normally they don't come out right out and say that, but that's kind of implied. Or there are those who will say that if you want to remain saved. And what's interesting is that a lot of individuals who kind of move in that direction also believe once you're saved, you're always saved, which is, which is true. But there's this idea that's implanted that if we do these certain things, uh, we, are, we are sinning. So we have to be careful to make sure that we don't add. I do think there's enough in the Bible for us to follow. We don't have to create other things. 
and we do need to use wisdom uh, in making our decisions as, to far, as far as what we do with our time, what we do with our, you know, as far as whatever entertainment we get involved in, all those types of things. Uh, and remember that you can be involved in a form of entertainment like, I, you know, I love football, right? and that's not sinful, but it can become sinful. Right? If I do that for too many hours, uh, that can become sinful. Well, how many hours is too many? Well, that depends. All right? There's no set rule in the Bible all right, where that's stated. So the idea is, again, we have to use wisdom. So Paul, uh, what was going on there early on was there are individuals coming along saying that there are certain things that we needed to do. Uh, to make sure that we were Christians, or to make sure that we were close to God. That was normally how it would be portrayed, that if you really love God, you'll do this. Or if you're really devoted to God, you do this. Or if you do this, you'll be especially close to God. And so certain individuals, maybe many individuals, will say, okay, so there's this list here I have, and if I do these five things or these seven things, whatever, I will be close to God. That's, that's not necessarily true. You need to follow what the Bible says. Yes. Pastor, does that include, like, I guess, back in the day, they were very strict about women not wearing pants or shirts. Okay, when you read in the Old Testament, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew people were following the law of Moses. So, under the law of Moses, they had to do that. Now, the way that got translated in America is there was a time, and there are still some churches like this, uh, but there was a time, and usually again it was conservative churches, where women were, were forbidden to wear pants of any kind. You had to wear dresses only. Because if you wore pants, that was called the clothing of men, and therefore they were sinning. Um, it's untrue, but anyway, that's, that's kind of how, that how that was portrayed. So it's um, not simple to wear pants? No. Okay. It's not simple to wear pants. Um, so you're okay. <laughs> and we, and there, you can get into a whole lot of things when it comes to that. But, the, you know, I guess the main thing for believers today is we always want to make sure that we dress appropriately. Okay, so that's a, that's a broad term. Um, and people can have different ideas as to what that means. But we want to make sure that we are, you know, we're not dressing provocatively. We want to make sure that we're not dressing in such a way that we only want people to look at us. Uh, we, we want to make sure we dress in a way that would be considered modest. Um, uh, we want to make sure that we are not, that we're dressing in a way that does not confuse our gender, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's a big thing now. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is, so, and that's the, when it comes back to the whole hair thing, you know, where Corinthians says it's shameful for a man to have long hair, but it never tells you how long that is. Um, so the main idea with that is as long as you look like a man, I think you're fine. Whether your hair is short like mine or it touches your collar, there at times, and again, there's maybe a few churches like this, but there were churches that if a young man showed up at church and his hair touched his ear, he'd be asked to leave. Um, or if his hair touched his collar, he'd be asked to leave. Um, because, again, the idea was is that individual... Some churches might not say that that was sinful, but they would say that's borderline leading to rebellion against God, which it may not be, probably isn't, but that's, that's the kind of thing that people get caught up in. And so that's, that's why the warning. 
um, that, that's, that's here. Yes? That wait, wait, when did his, his work before God? Okay. And work almost twenty four seven. Right. And that would be wrong. I have tried to introduce him to God and share a faith with mm-hmm. God with him. Mm-hmm. And he made the comment you know better than that. Well, remember now, people people have all kinds of ideas. You can't get all caught up in that. The main thing is if the person doesn't know the Lord, whatever they're doing, on one hand doesn't matter. Because, for example, if he puts the work before God, but he's, if he's not a believer, no. everything in his life is before God. Yeah. So the goal is not to get him to work less. The goal is to get him to come to Christ. So we want to make sure we don't want to get into that kind of a argument with a person. Uh, and that's where sometimes Christians have, in the past have messed up, where we, we are overly concerned with trying to get people to conform to our standard of behavior and we miss the real need. So if all of a sudden an individual, you know, let's, so we'll just take the example. Let's say a young man goes to a church. He's asked to leave because of his hair. So he gets a haircut. He starts dressing appropriately. Um, in some areas, they, they would, uh, churches, they would tell men that it was wrong to have facial hair. Um, so let's say he shaved every day. And you go through all those things. If he does all those things, what have you accomplished? Nothing. All right? The, the, the individual needs Christ. Uh, and um, normally what I've noticed is that when an individual becomes a believer, when they become a true believer in Christ, most all those other things eventually pretty much take care of themselves. You don't have to worry about it. You know, it's just, you know, it's not a thing. Um, so anyway, so... Paul wants to emphasize that once again the Colossian believers have died with Christ. Remember, we've been talking about our unity with Christ or being in Christ and what that meant. Uh, We covered that for the past several weeks. And so because of this union with Christ, they are separated from all these different types of things that he's been talking about. So they had died with Christ. They had died to legalism. They had died to basically uh, maybe a form of ritualism. Um, that also creeps into the churches where people believe that there are certain rituals that we do and if we do those rituals it's it's not quite like they that, like they they're not really believing that God is a genie and if you do certain things he will do for you but it kind of borderlines on that um, I think I've shared with you before uh, where sometimes individual they're going through some rough a uh, rough patch in their life and you're talking with them, and then they'll say, I just don't know why God is, let, is having this, let, letting this happen to me. I've been faithful in church my whole life. It's like, okay, time out. You know, what, what are you saying when you say that? It's almost like you're saying, God owes you. Right? You've been faithful in church, God owes you. God doesn't owe you that. Right? And there's all kinds of things the Bible says about the difficulties that we go through, and why we go through them, and what God is seeking to do. But when we have that idea that I don't know why this is happening to me, I've done this for God, or I've, whatever it happens to be, you, that's in this whole arena of legalism or ritualism. So we do have to be really careful that we don't um, uh, be, get, slip into that thinking. People can go to church for the right reasons for a long time and still slip into that. 
because things become overwhelming and we're trying to figure out what's going on and maybe we become cynical towards God and you know it's like I've, I've heard people say I've, I've been tithing and going to church my whole life for nothing I'm like okay time out what, 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 what are you saying because if you go to church and tithe your whole life and you are never rewarded in this life that's not why you're doing those things we do those things to please the Lord. We give our money because we're investing in the kingdom. Whether we get something immediately out of it or not, it's just that's just not the thing. And so yeah, so we just have to so we just have to be kind of be careful with that to make sure that we don't allow that to, to, to seep in. I think a lot of people now, well I shouldn't say it that way. If you if you are going to a to a fairly decent church that really is striving to understand what scripture says, then you're less likely to kind of move in that direction. But if, there's, if it's a church where there's a lot of superficial things going on, and they may not intend to be, but there's a lot of superficial things, sometimes we can easily slip into that. Uh, and that's why it's important, again, that all of us, besides coming to church, you know, that when we come to Bible study, when we listen to the sermons, that we're paying attention, we're trying to learn, that we're reading the Bible, that we all, we're studying the Bible, and that we fellowship with believers, and that we pray for each other, pray with each other. All those are real basic things. But we need those things. All those things help, in a sense, to kind of keep us in check. Uh, and then also, what that, what that opens the door to is, as we grow closer to different people, that then gives us an avenue that then when you may be going through some real struggle, there's someone that you trust you can talk to. You know, it's not like, well, there's no one I can talk to. Right? Because it may not be the pastor. You know, you may not know the pastor all that well. You might actually feel closer to the individual that first invited you to church and you're good friends with them. So you can open up to them. And, and they, hopefully they'll be able to help you or at least point you in the right direction. So all those relationships in that we're building are also really very important because God desires that the Christian life be lived in a community. Uh, there's not this idea that we're just kind of on our own uh, is a foreign concept in the Bible. There's, there's not that, you know, there's a few individuals who've kind of gone out on their own. Those are very rare individuals. Um, we, we, we were created to need each other, to meet each other's needs. That's the, when you go and you study all the spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts were given for us to serve others. And God gives spiritual gifts to others so they can serve us. Um, there's this idea, it, it's happened uh, in a lot of the charismatic circles when it comes to primarily the gift of tongues, um, where people will say, well, when I speak in tongues, I'm ministering to myself. And I've had a discussion with a few people who've said that. And I go, whoa, time out. I go, where in the world is that in the Bible? Where do you get this idea that you minister to yourself with a spiritual gift? I said, because what you're saying then is if I have the spiritual gift of teaching or preaching, then I can just go in the closet, sit up a mirror, turn on a light, and start teaching myself. I don't need anybody. I said, that's, that's just kind of weird. All right? That's not how this works. You know, I depend upon other teachers. There are those who depend upon my teaching. And then those who depend on my teaching, there are people that they teach. And there's people who depend upon them. It just kind of works that way. And whether you have the gift of mercy or the gift of helps or whatever it happens to be, those things we have so we can use those gifts to help each other, to encourage each other and strengthen each other in the church uh, to grow, to face adversity, uh, and to move forward uh, really together as well as individuals um, serving the Lord and being faithful in all those areas. So all of this is all very much connected and 
why legalism is a, such, again, such a big bugaboo, because it actually can move us away from Christ. There are many individuals who get caught in legalism who may mean well, they think they're doing the right thing, but it causes us to become much more dependent upon ourselves, And we can also develop more pride that way, because look what I did. I don't do this, I don't do that. Um, I was teasing a friend of mine once, he had, he had joined the church, and he was a relatively new believer, so he, he, he really met well, and I may have been a little overly sarcastic with him, um, but he said that he had joined a church that was close to his home, and I said, oh, really? He goes, and this is what he said, oh, yeah, they take the Christian life real serious. I go, they do? He goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, tell me, how, how do you know that? And so he opens his Bible and pulls out this paper, he goes, this right here. And he really was acting that way. And I go, well, well what is that? He goes, man, I, I had to sign this thing. I said, oh, what's in there? He goes, let me tell you. <laughs> so he opens it up and he says, he said, uh, you, don't, you, you, you agree to never play cards, to not play with dice, to not drink or get drunk. Um, I'm trying to remember what else to say. Oh, that he wouldn't go dancing. Uh, that he wouldn't go to movies, you know, those kind of things. And so I, I'm looking at the list, and I go, this sounds like one of the most liberal churches I've ever heard of. He said, what do you mean? I go, well, if, if this list is the list we follow as Christians, I just can't help this to, to notice what's missing. He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, where is thou shalt not commit adultery? If this is the list, adultery must be fine. Why? Well, I, I don't think, nope. You said they take the Christian life seriously. And your proof was this list. This is the it list. And the things that God mentioned aren't on here. And the thing the church has mentioned is on here. I said, I, I think you've made a big mistake. I said, um, maybe it's better. And I did this. I go, maybe it's better to go dancing and remain pure sexually. He goes, well, but it does make sense. I go, yeah, because God says a whole lot about sexual sin. There's not a whole lot in there about dancing. In fact, David danced. He even danced in his underwear once. His wife got mad, but God didn't get mad. So I, I, don't, you know, I don't know what the deal is. I said, but that's kind of, that's kind of in the Bible. Um, so we need to, you know, we need to, and so, and then he finally said, he kind of hung his head and he goes, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. <laughs> so the idea, though, is that people can, they can, I think some people really mean well, and they really think they're helping people out. Uh, but it can, be, it can detract, really, from depending upon God. And so we have to be careful with that. So again, I'm not saying that, oh, yeah, just take all those things and do them all. We all have to answer to God, right? We have a conscience. So remember, so hopefully, I think all of us here understand that it's not a sin for us to eat pork. But if an individual is raised in a Muslim home and their whole life they've not eaten pork and they become a believer and they still feel uncomfortable eating pork, it would be wrong for me to insist that they eat pork. If he goes the rest of his life without eating pork because he believes it honors the Lord, then he shouldn't eat pork. Right? So, that, so there's, see where this flexibility is. It allows for that and we don't have to be, make that like a big deal. Yes. These um, churches, 
churches that mm-hmm. say that you can lose your salvation. Yes. Um, isn't that a form of legalism that they are uh, that they have entrenched into their doctrine and their way of thinking? Like, um, you know, you have to. It, they're, they're going by, you know, what you do. You know, they're depending mm-hmm. more on works than what. You know, the Bible talks about grace and forgiveness and, and Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. Isn't that a form of legalism that they are going? Not necessarily, because it depends on how it's taught. Okay? So you have Nazarene churches, free will churches, Pentecostal churches, various forms of charismatic churches um, that, that believe in varying ways that a person can lose their salvation. So in some circles... They believe you can lose your salvation almost like you can lose a set of car keys. In others, it's, it's uh, very, very difficult to lose your salvation. In fact, it's so close to what we believe, we would simply say that individual is never truly saved. They would say that individual has walked away from, has apostatized in the sense that they've lost their salvation. So it's not necessarily that because they don't necessarily go by like those extra rules. Um, and say if you do those things you've lost your salvation some might so it depends on where they're at on that so I you can't you can't just give a blanket statement that that's where they're at because they're not some some may be but but some aren't Um, it is uh, it really boils down to in in the ones that are the most conservative it boils down to uh, what we would call habitual sin uh, I believe that First John, when you read the book of First John, it makes it pretty clear that a true believer will not habitually sin. Now, it doesn't ever define habitual. Does that mean three times? Or does it mean five times a year for ten years? It's not in there, okay? Uh, so that, w- that requires wisdom to figure out because there are some individuals who can struggle with certain sins and they're actually struggling even though it's the same sin and they have those who are involved in habitual sin which again we would say yeah, that, that probably causes us to believe that person was never really a true believer. So there's some difficulty there and of course the Bible tells us to be very careful about that. We don't run around and start declaring these individuals saved and these individuals unsaved and all that kind of stuff. I'd be very, very careful. So um, that's why, again, the need for the Bible and the need to study the Bible and the need for wisdom. Um, when I talk to people where if, if I am in doubt as to their state uh, or their relationship, I just tell them that. But I, but I don't say, you're not saved. Unless it's like an obvious situation. Like I had a man who was in an adulterous relationship and he just, he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna repent, he wasn't gonna stop, he wasn't gonna do any of that. And so I just told him, I said, well, I said, I, as far as I'm, I can tell, then you clearly, you are a non-believer. And he got, he was upset, but you know, whatever. You know, I, and I told him why I thought that. But in most cases, I'll tell an individual that, that I have doubts and I think they need to examine their life before the Lord because true believers don't really do that. Um, so we just have to be careful with that. 
Some churches, I think, have made the mistake of being too quick with that, either too, too quick to condemn an individual and say they're not saved, or maybe too quick to say somebody is saved. You know, personal <coughs> struggling with those things sometimes, I think, is a very important aspect of growth as a believer. They need, you know, I trust that the Holy Spirit will convict them of, of their wrongdoing, right. and if they're really seeking and searching their lives as they're maybe dealing with some major issues to try to figure that out, I have yet to see God fail an individual and that individual not come to what I believe ended up being the proper conclusion. Um, there was a young lady we had in our church who grew, grew up in the church and she grew up in a really strong Christian home and everyone who knew her was convinced she was a Christian and she said she was a Christian and then one day she came to see me and she said, I don't think I know the Lord. And oftentimes what happens is, you know, a, a pastor uh, will too, oh, no, no, you're a believer. You're just going through doubts. And I'm like, well, but I don't know what's going on in our heart. I don't know what's going on. Because we all know sin is not always what? Real visible. All right. So uh, we talked. We went through the word of God. We prayed. And I told her that she needed to um, examine her heart and, you know, really wrestle through these things, which she did. Um, it went on for a couple of months, and then she came to the very firm conclusion that she did not know Christ. Uh, and she repented of her sin, and she believed in Christ, and we baptized her. Some people in the church were very disturbed by that, which is okay. Uh, others, very joyous, because maybe some of them have gone through the same thing. Um, then there was another lady that I knew uh, that comes here, and she was in her 40s. And she became uh, very confused as to whether or not she was, had really become a Christian when she was 16. And she was, really, she was going through a lot of struggles. So we prayed, we talked, um, kind of went through some things. And then after uh, about a month or so, she came to the firm conclusion, which I think was correct, that she really was a believer. Um, so we just, you know, if we, we do want to take all those things real serious. Um, and we also want to understand those things that can muddy the waters or confuse the issue. And legalism and ritualism can really do that. It can really mess with us. Um, so we never want to underestimate the grace of God. We never want to take it lightly. But we never want to presume on the grace of God either. And so that, that calls for wisdom. So I think when it comes to, an at least in an individual who says, who says they're struggling... Patience is the best way to go forward. It's not a sprint. Yes, ma'am. Could you say that again? You said never underestimate the... Oh, yeah. We never want to un underestimate... Uh, I'm not reading that, so I'm trying to remember what I said. Never, under <laughs> never underestimate uh, the grace of God. Uh, we never want to presume on the grace of God, and we never want to take the grace of God lightly. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, MJ. Mm -hmm. When one of them gave birth, and the midwives went to mm -hmm. the gave birth before they got there. Yep. They lied to Pharaoh. Yep. But God had favor on them. Yep. How is that not a sin? Well, are you God? No. Okay. I'm starting to curious. Were they saving lives? Yes. Okay. I got it. 
I can't go beyond that. I, there's not a lot there. All I can tell you is we just know that's what happened. And there's people who, have, there's people who really struggle with it. They get all hung up on that. Um, so, uh, you know, during World War II, there were people who hid Jews. There were those who lied to the Gestapo about it, and there were those who didn't. So is one more godly than the other? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, it is, so it's, it's not always as clear cut as that. I do know this. In my life, the way I'm living now, if I lie to you, that's a sin. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes people do this. We look for maybe an exception or unusual case in the Bible to justify our sin. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Because that doesn't work. <laughs> All right? Uh, um, even, if, even, even if we were to say those ladies clearly lied, that doesn't mean you can lie doesn't mean that. So, <laughs> yes, sir. All right, so I want to talk about when you talk about legalism. I actually experienced that in my own Christian walk where I felt like because I am of service, I'm like, God, he owed me. And it actually pushed me back further in my walk with Christ. Yes. And I started to yeah. see my life deteriorate. Right. Um, and things got significantly worse. And it is like, um, this is a different course of action now. I do see a difference of where my life is going. Mm-hmm. definitely can make you go backwards because it gives because you're beginning with a false view of God you know because you're because you think God is in a sense agreeing with your view you owe me because I've done such and such so there's a, there's a difficulty when you begin to get that correct then other things begin to fall in line most definitely all right <clears throat> okay so the key uh, to understanding verses 20 through 23 is Verse 23, where he says, these things, and he, you know, he goes through a small list, do not handle, do not touch. We'll get to that in a moment. But in 23, he says, these things, or these indeed, or have indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. So see, that's, he's calling it what it is. When you get into ritualism and legalism and all those things, that's a self-made religion. You, you may be adding on some things to Christianity, which is what happens a great deal, but it's self-made religion. And so we want to make sure we, st- we stay away from that. Um, yes. Uh, so if you, when, you read through the, when you read through the Gospels, you know, Jesus spent a lot of time correcting a misunderstanding of Scripture that the, that the, Jews, uh, that the Jewish leadership was, was, was passing on to their people. They weren't misrepresenting everything, but there were certain things they were misrepresenting. So there's what we call the tradition of the elders. And the tradition of the elders is just another way, if, you, if you've ever read anything dealing with this aspect, you come across what people call fence laws. Okay, So fence laws is just another name for the tradition of the elders. And what, what the Jewish leadership had done through really decades um, is... Their original intention was they, they don't want the people to violate the law of Moses. The law of Moses is contained in 613 commands. That's how many commands there are. All right. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, that's 10 of 613. That's how many there are. So 
the idea was is to build a fence of laws around the law of Moses. And the intent was that if we, if we, if we erect this fence of laws, when people break those laws, it stops them in their tracks. And we've done a good thing. They realize they're on the wrong path. They violated the fence law, but they haven't broken the law of Moses. And that's a good thing. What, what took place was when they did that, eventually they began to treat the fence laws equal to the law of Moses. And then we began to have a problem. And then, along, and then with that then came where you also find times when Jesus was scolding the Pharisees, not all of them, but many of them, because of the way they manipulated the fence laws. And what they would do is, because their goal was to appear to be holy, is they would find ways to manipulate the fence law so that they could actually break the fence law but still look holy. So an example would be, um, when it came to the Sabbath day, I, I think, now I don't know how many, how many laws were enacted when Jesus was on earth. I know that today, another name for fence laws would be the Mishnah. Okay, I have a copy of the Mishnah. Um, makes for a very interesting reading. So in the Mishnah, there's 1,500 laws about the Sabbath day. When you read the Bible, the Sabbath day is... Uh, don't work, it's a day of rest. It's pretty much it. Don't make a fire, you know, to cook. Just don't do that. It's a day of rest. That's about it. There's 1,500 laws that they've added to that. So in that, they got down to the minutia, to where they said that a man can only travel so many steps from his home. And, they, and that's why, you know, there's a lot of things that Jewish communities do but they always make, try to make sure there's a synagogue that's fairly close in each of the little communities. And people always would want to live in the vicinity of that so that they could walk to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and walk home and not violate the number of steps they're supposed to take. So a lot of these Pharisees had all kinds of businesses in all kinds of towns. So they got to travel, they got to walk, and they got to walk from one town to another town, and they got to be there by, for them by Sunday and Saturday, which is a Sabbath day, is going to make this really hard. So how do I do that and still be holy? Well, very simple. So what they said was they said that if a man can only travel so far from his home, question, where is his home? And someone said, his home is where his possessions are. And so you get a backpack and you put on a book and a candlestick, maybe a plate, maybe a pillow. And then you go walking down the road, walk as many miles as you want, put it down, and you say, this is my possessions. These are my, this is my home. <laughs> and so how far have you traveled from your home? You haven't. It's right there. And so you sleep, and you go the next day, and travel as far as you want because your home is with you. And so that's the kind of things that they would do uh, to kind of get away from where they actually violated the fence law, but they can still appear holy and get away. And so Jesus called them on their hypocrisy. And there's all kinds of examples in that in the Bible. Uh, and then when you read the Mishnah, uh, one of my favorite readings, this is just, it's got nothing to do with anything else. It's just interesting. They even got down to, when it came to how, how um, uh, serious they were about the, about the uh, Sabbath day, was the question is, so what do you do if your house catches on fire on the Sabbath day? Because you can't go get a bucket of water and carry it to put, to put it out. 
because you're, that's, that, that's labor. So if your Gentile neighbor volunteers to put the fire out, then it's good. You can't help him, but it's good that he's doing that. Unless your Gentile neighbor is a child, then you have to stop the child. So now if your house is burning and you want to save some of your possessions, you can't go in and carry them out because now you're a beast of burden. So what do you do? Well, you can go in your house and you can put garments on, but no more than seven. I have no idea where the number came from, but no more than seven. So you run the house, put on seven robes, come out, you can take them off, run back in the house, I guess, and get some more. So if you're wearing them, <laughs> you're not, and I'm serious, you can read it for yourself. It's in there. They take that very serious. Um, so in any of your house catches on fire, you can't ask your neighbor to put the fire out, but if you volunteer, it's good. So all these things about the Sabbath day, um, they're really serious. That's why they got angry at Jesus uh, um, when he was riding on the ground, because according to the Mishnah or the tradition, that was, that was plowing. You can't plow on the Sabbath day. So that meant you can't dig in the dirt, which also means you can't write in the dirt because that simulates plowing. And so, anyway. In fact, uh, the one time, remember the Pharisees got mad at Jesus' disciples because they were walking to the wheat field and they were grabbing the wheat and they were doing this. So according to, the, uh, even though they were hungry, uh, according to the, the tradition of the elders, when they grabbed the wheat kernels, they were harvesting. Then when they rolled it in their hands, they were winnowing. And then when they put it in their mouth, they were storing it. And therefore, they were sinning. So you can get really carried away with that. Yeah, MJ. Jesus said in response to that last remark, the Son of Man is Lord of the Oh, I know that. Absolutely, yeah. And that was another time when he was, uh, when he was challenging them. That's right. Yep. Uh, some, the Jews did, did uh, practice, um, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Corporal punishment. So if an individual was breaking a lot of those laws, they would beat them. They would take a rod and they would tell the... the the elders would be involved in doing this. They would tell, I guess, the congregation, which would be mostly just the men, what the individual did, and they would beat them. Uh, you know, they did it to the apostles when they were preaching the gospel. They, they were commanded not to do that, and you're supposed to obey uh, the Jewish leadership in, in the synagogues. And so they, those men were beaten. That was a con When I say common, I don't know if it went on every week. But yes, sometimes individuals would be punished for that. So, yeah, those things did go on. All right, going on. So... When it comes to the phrase there in verse 23 of self-made religion, the Greek word means voluntary, arbitrary worship. So it's a worship which one devises and prescribes for himself. So you go back to uh, verse 20. So if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So then it begins to cover some general things where, you know, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Again, the idea there was that um, those were not requirements to be a believer uh, in Christ. It didn't affect your spirituality. And again, he says, these are referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. So today, uh, you have some of this. So if you were a Seventh-day Adventist, 
uh, they teach that you need to follow all the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Now, that's not a command to believers, but they teach that. That was a command to the Jewish people. Um, of course, you have another problem. I think you can follow the logic. Um, when it comes to the law of Moses, even though there's 613 commands, it's never referred to as the laws of Moses. It's always law because it's one standard. 613 laws, but it's one. Remember, uh, there's a saying or a statement in the Bible, if you break one, you're guilty of what? Breaking them all. Because it's one standard. Okay? So if it's one standard, so keep that in mind. So today, when we talk about the law of Moses, and it's okay to do this, we talk about the ceremonial law, right? We talk about the sacrificial law, um, and there's the moral law. So we can do that in our discussion, but God never divided up the law that way. It was one unit. Because what some people do today is, well, we no longer have to follow the sacrificial law, but we have to follow the moral law. No, you don't. We follow the law of Christ. It's in the New Testament. That's, and there are many, many things in the New Testament, obviously, that repeat the, the moral law of the Old Testament because morality is morality. But we don't follow the moral law of the Old Testament. We follow the law of Christ. So, if you, again, if you go to the Seventh-day Adventist, they teach that you need to follow the dietary laws, but they don't follow the other laws. So there's an inconsistency there. So the idea is if you're going to follow the law of Moses, you have to follow all of it. It's either all of it or none of it. No one has the right to divide it, period. You don't have a right to do that. You can't, you know, you can't say that, uh, well, you know, we like these certain aspects of the law, so we're going to do these. But obviously we don't have to do these anymore because Christ was the final sacrifice, which is true. But that does not have anything to do with eliminating part of the law and arbitrarily choosing to follow the rest of it. So we follow the law of Christ, and believe me, when it comes to the imperatives in the New Testament, um, I think there's about 800. So that's, that's, that's more than 613. So there's plenty uh, for us to, to keep us straight, and no one's giving anyone permission to violate the moral law of God, because that's not going to happen if you follow the law of Christ. Uh, I think in the um, Seventh-day Adventist Church, they also teach that if you go to church on Sunday, that's the mark of the beast. Um, I didn't know that until a couple years ago. Um, I do know that they worship only on, on Saturday. But I didn't know that they considered Sunday worship the mark of the beast. But it's in their writings um, and their books and stuff. So it's just kind of interesting. So they're really taken aback by, by us not worshiping on, on the Sabbath day, uh, which is fine. They're just incorrect. Uh, we just follow the Bible. But anyway, that's, so that's what all these different things are that he's talking about. Um, again, as it says at the end of 22, according to human precepts and teachings. So again, this is what he says. So what does he say about legalism and this empty ritualism? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So that's the first part. It appears wise. Okay, so again, we're not saying that an individual should not seek to exercise what we would call wisdom in making decisions as to how we live our lives in areas that are not specifically covered in the Bible. Okay, we don't, we don't, we're, not, we're not saying you should not do that. What we're not doing is saying that there are certain things that they are, that they are sinful in and of themselves and they violate the law of God. So again, I, my, Arnold Futuma, if you've ever met Arnold, he's, he's a riot. He's this little Jewish man. He's got most of the Old Testament, mem, most of the Bible memorized. 
He's very brilliant. He does speak in a monotone. And he was at a church, and he was having a discussion with the pastor once. It was a very legalistic church. Um, and Arno was teaching there. And so somehow they got into this topic of some of these rules the church had when they were all having dinner together. And so I guess the pastor or his wife was complaining about some of the church because they were, they were going to the movies, um, and the pastor was upset because they were sinning. And so then they asked Arnold what he thought, which is not a good idea if you're looking to be supported in your ideas. So Arnold asked a simple question. He said, well, why do you consider it a sin for them to go to the theater? And so his, the pastor's wife spoke up immediately. She says, well, you know what goes on in the back of a theater. Arnold never, never broke a smile, never changed his expression and said, do you know what goes on in the back of a, of a car, in the back seat of a car? Do you still drive a car? <laughs> the pastor was pretty embarrassed because the logic was the same, right? If you don't go to the movie theater because of what goes on in the back of the, of the movie theater, then you don't drive a car because you know what goes on the back of some cars. Amen. And so the, 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 <laughs> I asked Arno, so I said, Arno, what happened? He goes, nothing, but I've never been invited back. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that was his deal. So the thing is, is that, uh, so again, they have an appearance of wisdom, and again, they promote self-made religion. So there's this idea in there that this promoting of the self-made religion is it feeds the ego. Whether you feel spiritual or you feel like you're better, whatever it happens to be, it's, it's, it promotes this idea, which means it's, it's promoting something that is not God-ordained. It's not from the scriptures. It's not Christ. It's self-made religion. Then he says, uh, and it promotes what? And asceticism. And that's the idea that... Um, you know, if you remember the time, if you ever, if you even know just a real little bit about church history, there was a time when being, being a monk in the desert was a big deal. People would go in the desert, and they wouldn't eat very much, they wouldn't bathe, and they would sit out there maybe in a cave or on the top of a rock formation, and apparently people would say, oh man, these guys are super wise, and they would go out there and talk to them, whatever. Okay, that was a big deal. All right? Or you would have these monasteries where they would all take a vow of poverty. And if, they want to, if you want to do that, that's fine. But the idea was, that was promoted was, because they did that, that made them closer to God. And it made them more godly. It doesn't do that. Remember, that when it comes to the sin of loving money, that can be committed by a poor person just as easily as a rich person. You do know that. It's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money. And maybe there's more poor people who sin that way than rich. I don't know. But the bottom line is, is that, once again, we, we kind of ignore the details of what the scripture says. So there's this idea that somehow that if you're poor or what have you, then you're, you are closer to God or you're more godly. Not necessarily. For some people, they need to do that. For others, it's, it's whatever. Um, we have to be careful we're not looking down on people. There are some individuals um, uh, that God has used that lived in abject poverty their entire life. And there are people who made more money than they knew what to do with that God used in incredible ways and were actually really very godly. Um, there's a story of a man that lived in Texas. I'll tell you real quick, he made a lot of money. Um, he tithed faithfully. And what he did between him and God, 
uh, he said, he told the Lord, he said, I, I've been blessed beyond my means, beyond in, anything imaginable. So he reversed the tithe and he gave God 90% and he lived off 10%. So he supported this church, he built hospitals, he supported a lot of missionaries on his own where he was the full support and his business grew. And he had so much of the 10% that he still had more money than he knew what to do with. And so he, uh, he was a good businessman. He started another business and told the Lord that he would continue to do the 90-10 thing with the first business and he would give 100% of all the profits. He would take no salary. 100% of the profits of the, of, of the new business to support more missionaries, et cetera. And that's what he did. And that business grew and exploded. So one of the things he would do is he would buy his wife a brand new car every year. She, she'd drive a new car and then they trade it in and get another one. I mean, he had the money, you know? And there were all these rumors about, oh yeah, look at these people, they're filthy rich, they don't love God, they're hoarding it, because they had no idea what they were doing. But the pastor knew, but this man told the pastor he was forbidden to tell anybody what he was doing. And so, in fact, but this is how he said it. He said, pastor, as long as I'm alive, don't you ever tell anybody. Well, the pastor took him literally, because when he died, he, he, he said, well, he said as long as he was alive. And so when he, his, when he did his funeral, he told the people what this man had done. And for 40 or 50 years, there were a lot of people who had disdain for this man and his family. They had gossiped about him and his family for decades. And just, I mean, just said nothing but nasty things about him because they had no idea. And so this man, the pastor, gave the story of what he, how he had handled his money, which obviously brought a lot of shame, uh, as it should, to the people that were there. So God used that man in tremendous ways. Now, God didn't need that man. He didn't need his money. God doesn't need that, but, that's, but God uses the rich and God uses the poor. Um, and so we just have to make sure that we don't, again, begin to think that because someone is poor, that automatically makes them more godly or not. It doesn't. Uh, and here he tells us that where those individuals who make, take these vows or whatever of asceticism uh, again, that's, that's, again, that's, that's self, self-made religion. And he adds there, and severity to the body. And there was a time, with, again, with the monks that they would do just a, lo- a large amount of fasting to where there was just, they were skin and bones. Uh, I, and again, I think some of those individuals, I think they meant well. They were just misguided. You know, they, uh, remember that a lot of the monks, they, they weren't reading the Bible. The Bible wasn't as plentiful as it is today where everybody had a copy. And there were several of them who probably didn't, didn't even know how to read. So they were ignorant of a lot of things. Uh, so don't, I don't want you to automatically assume that individuals who were monks back in those days, oh yeah, they were just doing it for what, we don't know. I, I think some of them were, I think they really did love the Lord. They really thought that was the way, uh, but, but it's not. Uh, then he goes on and says this, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this is what's key, because you know, God's called us to holiness. So these, these legalistic rules and this empty ritualism the bottom line is, when it comes to resisting temptation and indulging the flesh, those rules don't do a thing. They do nothing to make you stronger. They don't. We draw our strength from the Lord, meaning we draw our strength from the relationship that we have with Christ. That's why we read the Word, we study the Word, we pray, we, uh, we pray for each other, we pray with each other, we fellowship. That is how we resist temptation. And then through that process, God changes what? Our hearts. 
And when your heart changes, what else changes? Your desires. Your desires change. I mean, it, it's incredible. Uh, and it's not this thing where you're, where you're never going to say, man, I wish God hadn't changed my heart because, you know, I really wanted such and such, and now I don't. I can't believe he did that to me. You know, you're not going to think that because your actual desires are different. You know, at one time in my life when I was very, very young, for me, football was first, second, third, and fourth in my life. You could kind of tell my life was kind of out of sorts. All right? And so to me, it was just all football. There was a time as I grew that that just went away completely. I don't know what happened to it. Well, I kind of do, but God took it away. And my desires completely changed. There's no regrets. And I don't have any regrets because my desires changed. What I really want to do is now different. And that's how we resist indulging in the flesh, is our priorities change, our wants change, our desires change. And that's what Paul wants them to understand. That's why he spent so much time on dealing with that issue of being in Christ or a union with Christ. And now then says, now there's something here that, that can attack that or make you weak. And that's this legalism and empty ritualism, this self-made religion. You're promoting the wrong thing, even where you, where you practice maybe severity to your body to discipline yourself. It's not going to help you to resist sin. It's not going to do that. It comes back to Christ and the person of Christ. So we were in there uh, in verse 23, and we will pick it up in chapter 3 next week uh, when we get together. Let's pray. Father heaven, again, we thank you for your love for us and again for the teaching of Paul. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to help us to understand, that you would help us to grow in maturity, that you would give us wisdom, that, Father, we may live rightly, that, Father, we may be able to ascertain the truth, that, Father, we may make the right moral decisions, that we may live in a way that honors you in every way and that you would use us, Father, in the lives of others. We thank you again for this time together. We ask for your blessing on our lives as we go home. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.